every Wednesday, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. A show about endurance, human performance, and what it really means to feel alive and present. Presented to you by Javier Pineda. So this guy in the middle of combat, there's bullets flying. I mean, we're in war, right? Shooting artillery missions, strips down, takes all his body armor off. All he has is his, his, his pants, you know, his military trousers, his boots, and a skivvy shirt, just a t-shirt. And he takes an M9 Beretta pistol, puts it in his teeth, he swims across the fucking Yellow River. No way. That, I swear to God, it's in my memory. I mean, it's in the unit history. And I was just like, holy fuck. Like, what did I just witness? For me, it's that sense of perspective, like we were talking about before. You know, and thankfully, I came back in one piece. I know a lot of Marines and, and soldiers who have not come back in one piece, who are missing limbs, who are, or who are physically injured. They are better human beings than I am. Mike, Scotty, my man, welcome to the Endurance Cartel podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. And honestly, I'm extremely privileged to be honest with you in the sense of you accepting and coming here and uh, sharing with us your story. And uh, I must say that you are a former vet. You are a producer, a movie producer. You are an, a book author and uh, soon to be an Oscar winner, man, because I... Honestly, it's I'm speechless and I have great amount of respect on what you have done. I mean, all this, this didn't just come from your mind. I mean, you lived a whole thing. And uh, what we do here in Endurance Cartel is basically we share our stories and how endurance has changed your life and how endurance contributed to where you are right now. And uh, what advice were you would you give to our listeners or our viewers and how they can come about and to get to that next level. In layman's terms, this is exactly what you, your persona defines. And uh, you were, if I'm not mistaken, uh, one of the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan, correct? Correct. And you were also one of the first boots, if not the first boots (laughs) in Iraq as well. And my first question to you would be, what made you join the Marines? Uh, you know, I, what made me join the Marines? That's a that's a great question. Ever since I was a little kid, maybe six, seven years old, growing up in the Cold War in the 80s uh, in America, there was an old school Army Navy store in Red Bank, New Jersey that uh, was from a different era. And I just remember the way it smelled. There was a guy smoking cigars in there. And my father would take me there because he knew I was just kind of like naturally interested in that type of thing. There was a picture on the wall of a bulldog and it said USMC on it, United States Marine Corps. That always kind of stuck in my mind. And as I learned more about it, you know, the Marines are, are the best or the toughest. And since I was a little kid, I, was, I just wanted to see if I had what it took to earn the title of United States Marine. Um, even at a younger age, maybe three or four, when my mom had one of those books where you fill in, you know, answers, you ask your, your child and like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And my answer, I think I was three or four. I said, I wanted to be a World War II airplane. So I, you know, I didn't, I guess I meant pilot, but I honestly believe that there just are certain human beings that are part of kind of the human condition and the, the patchwork of people that make up 
the human race. There are certain folks who are just born with what, what I like to call a, uh, a warrior DNA. And they're just, that is who they are, whether it's a protector or a fighter. And it doesn't mean you're bloodthirsty or that you hope for a war or anything like that. It's just, I think there are certain people that are, that are just like that. And I think I am one of those people. I also think that the Marine Corps does something that they call recruiting who they are. And so if you're in a strip mall somewhere in America and there's a Navy, an Air Force, an Army, a Space Force, a Coast Guard, and a Marine Corps recruiter there, the young person, man or woman, who self-selects and chooses to go first or ends up in the Marine Corps recruiting office and then ends up being shipped off to boot camp, they kind of have this innate thing within them, this DNA that they want to see if they have what it takes. They want to be the best. Now, obviously, other forces are extremely difficult. The Navy SEALs, you know, the power, you know, in the uh, the uh, some of the paratroopers, the power rescue folks in the Air Force. Obviously, a lot of special forces in the Army are tough, and I'm not poo-pooing them in any way. And others are different in psychological ways. Very difficult. Imagine being in a submarine for six months, you know, with no daylight. It's wild. So, but but I just noticed over the years that Marines wanted to be Marines, and. They didn't necessarily join for the GI Bill or maybe not to learn a skill, although that's part of it for many of us, myself included, just want to be Marines. And so that that kind of secondary DNA, so you have the warrior, warrior DNA, and then you have the secondary, I want to be United States Marine DNA. So you're just dealing with this pool of humans in boot camp that are just maybe a little bit different than everybody else to start off with, kind of like the ingredients that go in. And... Um, it's a very real thing. And it's, and it's, they, they really facilitate that idea of tradition in the Marine Corps to the point where it's like, when you're in combat and the bullets are flying, you're like, I'm United States Marine. I, I had the privilege and honor of fighting under the great General Mattis in, in both wars, Af Afghanistan and Iraq. He was my task force 58 commander in Iraq uh, and our first Marine division commander in, Af in, in uh, sorry, I got those backwards. Task force 58 in Afghanistan, first Marine division in Iraq. And, you know, we look to him as a, as a leader and you feel that you're a part of history and you feel that if you make a mistake, you're going to let your Marines down. And in combat, life or death, it's friendly fire. So there's just this, this brotherhood, this sisterhood, this sense of belonging to something bigger than yourself. And I think that all of that I kind of sensed in a way that I didn't sense from other services, right? You see these stickers on cars. Semper Fi, you see Eagle Globe and Anchors. I mean, it's just just out there, man. I, I love the Marine Corps more than anything on this earth. Really, it's one of the few things left on this earth that I feel is still very pure organization-wise. It's unadulterated. Uh, it's just different. I love it. I love it. Best thing I ever did. You created this documentary, this amazing and shocking documentary called Severe Clear, correct? And... Um, I just want to make sure that I got the title right. I don't want to mess it up. So I created, just say, I created it with a team of no, people. No, well, I mean, it's like you you had this camcorder with you. And you had this camcorder with you throughout the whole time during the war in Iraq, in Afghanistan and Iraq, the time with the time you were there. And you just documented every single bit of tedious information or just petty. In, But it was shocking to me because... I've seen a lot of war films and uh, I've seen gruesome ones. I've seen just the Hollywood special effects ones. 
And not, nothing has been more shocking than seeing your documentary because it was real, man. I mean, it was something that I was just like, holy shit. I mean, it's, um, these guys are joking about losing a leg. These guys are just, and there's just talking about, like, if it's nothing, because in your mind, I guess you're just prepared to lose a part of your body and lose yourselves in a way. But can you talk about about that? I mean, first off, I just uh, a couple of questions before that. You keep mentioning this this uh, this girl. I can't remember her name. Beth, Beth Quigley. Yeah. Yes. I want to talk more about Beth in uh, in in this question as well. What made you? Were you in the Marines before nine eleven or after nine eleven? So I was in the Marines for for many years before nine eleven. So I see. Okay. I, I joined the reserves as an enlisted Marine. So I started off at Paris Island in 1995 as a private, uh, but I was also attending school at the University of Miami. But I wanted that experience of, because of, I, I was pretty sure that I wanted to go on active duty after university, um, be a lieutenant, be an officer. Officers are kind of the middle managers. The younger officers are, are the, the platoon leaders. But I, but I had this conviction that I really wanted to be an enlisted Marine first a private or a private first class, eating shit, you know, scrubbing the toilets, doing guard duty, going through the Paris Island experience that I saw in the movie Full Metal Jacket when I was like 11 years old, Stanley Kubrick's film. I wanted that experience and it's a little different for officer training. So I figured out a way to, if I joined the reserves as what was called the 92 day reservist, I did uh, Paris Island one summer and then School of Infantry the next summer. And that allowed me to graduate college on time at you know, 22, 23 years old, and then go to uh, officer boot camp, for lack of a better word, uh, officer candidate school, they call it, it's in Quantico, Virginia. And so when you go through that training, it's two years, year and a half of training in the Marine Corps to become a lieutenant. The Marines are very adamant about that officer corps really knowing what they're doing. And, that may, and that's another thing that makes a big difference. And, and teaching leadership, because leadership is not just innate in, in most people, you learn how to lead. You lead from the front. So I had kind of both experiences of, of being the enlisted Marine, you know, in the reserves, granted, but I still did school of infantry, went to Cuba, you know, I went to El Vieques, Puerto Rico. And then, and then when you step in front of your platoon the first time and they get word that you're what they call it a prior enlisted. So you were standing in their shoes one day, it creates a bond. It's very powerful. And the platoon kind of runs itself because the Marines know, the young Marines know that you know all the tricks that they do to fuck off and not do what they're supposed to be doing, right? It's just, it's, it's awesome. I love it. You know, that was kind of my journey to becoming a Marine. Now the film and why that came to be was, you know, for the last 50 years or whatever, there's been something called the Marine Expeditionary Unit. They call it M-E-U. That we call it a MU for sure, for short. And that is, um, a, a mini aircraft carrier filled with helicopters and some some jump jets. There were Harriers. Now they're switching over to F-35s. Uh, battalion of Marines. There used to be tanks. Now there's no tanks. But really, it's it's a it's a battalion size infantry force of Marines with a bunch of aircraft and all the supporting stuff that they need to fight a battle without um, being resustained or resupplied by outside forces for 30 days. So if the president says send in the Marine Corps, anywhere in the globe, that's who goes in. And one MU leads from the East Coast of America, one, one MU leads from the West Coast at all times, and it's a six-month deployment. So there's just always this forward kind of 911, you know, emergency force, evacuate an embassy, get a down pilot, 
whatever, go fuck some people up that need to be fucked up, whatever it is. So you got to realize pre 9-11, it was, you know, the Clinton era, then into the Bush era. So I joined the, the reserves at, at uh, 18 and a half, almost 19 years old in 1995, did that till 99, graduated from university, went to officer candidate school summer of 1999, was commissioned then, was a second lieutenant. And then, you know, we did our training. So 99, 2000 and 2001 in August, my MU, our MU, left San Diego, California in August. And we hit, you go to, you know, the, the, Na- the Navy knows how to party, right? They know how to do deployments. So they just have to be ready to go so that we would go to Hawaii, then Australia, you know, then we're supposed to go to the, um, the Seychelles, Thailand, like all these amazing places. Then you turn around and come home. So my mother had went to videotape my graduation from officer candidate school and she bought a video camera and all that remains is a three second clip of her knee that says, oh, I think I messed up. Boop. And that's, that's all I have. And, you know, we laugh about it, but I realized I was like, okay, so there's no video of that. And then a couple months later um, at artillery school, because I was an artillery officer, and then had to, you know, shoot artillery, calling rounds, all this stuff. And a bunch of us were hanging out one night. We're, you know, 22-year-old lieutenants. There's 12 of us in the school for eight months. It's a tough school. It's out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma. And I was just kind of looking around. We were in a bar one night. We drove all the way to Dallas, right? We, we, you know, as soon as we could get out Friday night, drive all the way to Dallas. And me and my buddies are looking around, lifelong friends. And I'm like, you know, these are, these are the good old days. And I should be videotaping all this. And so I went to Walmart in Lawton, Oklahoma, and bought a video camera and just started videotaping. And unbeknownst to us, within a, you know, within a year, we'd all be in combat. Within two years or three years, we really would all be in combat in Iraq, which for us was the bigger, was the bigger one at that time. You know, some of the names of those guys that, that we serve with, it's just interesting because when we're taking Baghdad, one of the Marines who was in the vehicle with me that night that I decided to buy a video camera was in the battalion to our flank taking Baghdad and they were taking casualties. And I'm hearing his voice call for artillery and we're deconflicting the jets. It's crazy. It's just this wild thing, you know? So it's kind of like college buddies and now you're in the war together. Mm-hmm. So right. Kate, Kate Flieger um, was, it was a Marine. She went to Princeton, a uh, pretty hardcore Marine was a helicopter pilot on the Mew. I know, you know, and she was flying around CH 53s and the summer before Jesus. we're wondering if we're going to get through or two years before or whatever. <laughs> it's nuts, you know, just nuts. <laughs> So it's just this whole web of people that you kind of, that you serve with and you, and you grow up together. So the, the camera is something that I had with me because I was going to do this deployment, you know, Clinton slash early Bush era. There's no wars. It's training. It's fun. You know, it sucks, but it's fun, right? You're flying around helicopters, you're shooting guns, right? Blowing stuff up. And, and then 9-11 happened. And so 9-11, having grown up in New Jersey, I had lost uh, two friends, acquaintances that I knew from high school, uh, Beth Quigley and Peter Apollo. They were both one year older than I was. So when I was a freshman, they were sophomores, but uh, was in Spanish class for many years, taking AP Spanish classes with Beth. And it was a pretty small class. So for a couple of years, I just, you know, I wasn't like best friends or anything, but I knew her. You know, I knew mm-hmm. her and it was a small, relatively small school, Red Bank Catholic High School in Red Bank, New Jersey. So when 9-11 happened, obviously the world changed. They let like two days worth of emails through. So we were in Darwin, Australia, and 
I was in a casino, as were many other Marines. We were all very drunk because we'd been training live fire with the Australian military out in the outback for a couple of days. Live fire. Live fire. We have one one day off. Marines always train live fire. It's a big thing about Marine Corps training. Not always live fire, but that's the, you know, that's kind of the apex of the mm-hmm. whole thing, the whole point of it. So for instance, I knew it was real. One of my best friends in the whole world, um, I won't mention his name because he's an FBI agent now, special agent, but yeah, one of my best friends in the whole world. And when I was in Charlie Company, first battalion, first Marines, which was the unit that ended up going into Iraq, before our deployment, we were training in California and that we had machine guns were firing. We were shooting artillery, live rounds, and there were uh, Cobra gunships shooting rockets. It was all live. And if I didn't deconflict, I could knock one, you know, one of the, the uh, helicopters out of the sky with a round because it, it flies in a parabola, right? And if I didn't shift fires or the machine gunners and one of the other lieutenants who was in charge of the machine gun section and his men didn't adjust properly or shut off. I mean, Tim and his, I'm sorry, I said his first name, Tim and, and his Marines and his platoon are attacking the objective and it's real. And, you know, we lose a Marine or two every few years, sometimes more, you know, and it's, but you train how you fight and you learn the lesson very quick. I mean, a lot of times there's blanks too, bang, bang, you're dead, but that's all leading to live fire. You have to, you have to train how you fight, you have to. And, you know, that's, one of the reasons why also the Marine Corps is so absolutely vicious in combat. So you have that warrior DNA, and then you have these Marines who have trained over and over and over and over again with live fire with Marines who are their brothers and sisters who they love. And it's just, you can't beat it. You can't beat it. And then you have this warrior ethos of the Marine Corps, like, I cannot let the Marines from the other generations down. I can't lose this battle. So you're not thinking about politics when you're there, you know, like it, when the bulls are flying. You think about you're thinking about winning the battle, which means neutralizing or destroying and killing the enemy who's shooting at you. Pull them off the planet. It's vicious. And that's the that's the essence of the Marine Corps. So I've always been a nervous test taker. I've always been nervous when I go into competitions. Anything. I always get those butterflies. I may know my stuff very very well but when it comes test time or when it comes to competition something i get so nervous that i may fuck up mm-hmm, right. I'm not, and i've learned to shift my mentality to a more positive one mm-hmm. now when you guys heard 9-11 happened mm-hmm. and you were seeing those images those gruesome images uh, buildings coming down people just running for help in your mind i'm sure that you were like it's just a matter of time to, until we have to go absolutely and my purpose of asking this question is, were you at all doubted everything that you have done at that moment? Saying, am I prepared to go into battle? Am I prepared to go into X country, whatever they're going to send us, and just start blowing shit up? Zero doubt. And that's because, and that's not me trying to be like a tough guy, but I'll tell you when I got nervous. But let's start with the doubt. I had zero doubt. Because General Mattis, as the 1st Marine Division commander, held his colonels who held their lieutenant colonels who held their uh, majors and captains and lieutenants and we held our marines all the way down the line to such a high standard of training and preparedness we were ready and you don't you don't go on a deployment the marine corps will not let a unit that is not deployment ready go on deployment so what we have for a year before you deploy are these things, um, I won't talk about what their names and stuff, but the, you have these tests 
for, for, for months and months and months to where you go out on the ships and then you get on the helicopters. We flew over LA into the middle of the desert and we had to attack like a terrorist base. And it was real. We didn't have our maps. I had one satellite imagery that I had printed out because I went to the, the Intel guys. It was like, and if you fail to qualify, and they call it SOC, Special Operations Capable. If you fail to qualify, your commander gets relieved, like you're done. He's, his career's over. Like it's, it's, there's all these things. Then they have this thing called the McCree, Marine Corps Combat Readiness Evaluation. It still makes me nervous thinking about it. McCree <laughs> Hump, MCRE. Wow. It's 26 miles or 26 kilometers, I think it's 26 miles, we call it humping, where, where you're carrying, you know, forced on a force march in formation with combat load on your back. Now, I'm only five foot four, and that that load kicked my ass. Kicked my ass. And I, I hated humping. That's actually one of the reasons why I got out of the Marine Corps. <laughs> like, I'm doing this for four years, and I'm young, and then I'm out, because it destroys your body. But it's worth it. It's totally worth it. So this thing called the, the combat readiness evaluation, if you fail that, you don't go. So just like a Marine every year has to qualify with a rifle. And the rifle qualification is very difficult. So when you're in boot camp, if you don't qualify with a rifle, you get kicked out. You don't become a Marine. If you don't qualify every year, it's bad. And, you know, they you can lose rank and all this stuff. But you're nervous because you want to shoot expert, which is cr cross rifles. So there's three different levels. There's expert, there's sharpshooter, and there's marksman. And you always want to shoot expert with a rifle. And if you if you have a pistol as part of your, you know, weaponry, you want to, you want to do that too. So Marines pride themselves. It's, it's a culture of excellence. So they, they pride themselves on being in really good shape and they pride themselves on understanding history and understanding how battles are fought. So it's not like, I mean, we, we bitch, it sucks. It's hot or it's freezing cold. You're hungry. It sucks, but it's awesome at the same time. Like it's the best thing. It's the best. It's the best thing ever, you know? And I'm jealous now that I'm so old and these young Marines today are in this like wild world of getting ready for war with a peer adversary, a very large country. And, um, you know, they have all this new equipment, they have drones and they have anti-ship missiles and they're going to be doing island hopping. I'm like, oh, that is badass. The, the training for that. Well, I'm too old. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you, well, no, I wouldn't say you're that old, but anyhow, I can see, I know what you mean that your body's not going to withstand the, the, you can't even join after 30. I think 31 is the oldest that, to join the Marine Corps with like a waiver. And that's like, if you're going to be like a mechanic on a, like you were in the Navy and you want to switch over to the, the Marine Corps, they'll let you in. I think it's like 20 or 29 and you're done. For pilots, it's like, it's even younger. It takes so, it's so expensive to train pilots. The concept of the Marine Corps is expeditionary warfare, meaning that it's fast and it's light. So the army has a, a bunch of tanks and heavy artillery, but it takes, you know, weeks for them to get ready to go fight a war. Whereas the Marine Corps can be quick and nimble. Or the tip of the spear, got to get there quick. Tip of the spear means everything has to be lightweight, relatively, right? So you're talking unarmored vehicles, things that can move quickly, things that can be carried by helicopters or M22 Ospreys, the helicopters that, you know, the wings go like this and they go like this, or uh, can be carried in amphibious assault vehicles, they're, they, which they're, they're, they have new ones now coming in, mine were the old style from the 70s. The amphibious assault vehicles are these giant like hulks of tubs of aluminum that the you know almost like if you're on a ferry somewhere in Europe and like yep. it opens up and the stuff comes out in the water. Uh -huh. So the front of the ship opens up and the Amtrak we call them Amtraks amphibious tractors like the train but with a C <laughs> not a K. So the Amtraks come out of it where we did when I was in. They float, you know, a whole bunch of them get together and then 
they drive up onto the beach and they attack the beach. And it's called amphibious landing. So you can do an amphibious landing via surface with the Amtraks, or you can do one via helicopter. And when we flew into Afghanistan, it was, the, and it still is, the longest amphibious assault in world history. And it was when my unit, Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and actually 1st, and Bravo and Alpha Companies too. So it was 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, flew in CH-53 C-Knight helicopters. These really, really nice looking helicopters. They're, they're works of art. They have three engines. They're massive. Big Sikorsky helicopters. Off of the USS Peleliu, which is one of those mini aircraft carriers, flew 450, over 450 nautical miles through all, all kinds of hostile terrain. And nap of the earth, like you're flying right over the tips of the, um, of the uh, mountains, through the valleys. Their dust is coming through the window. And we're all thinking, are we going to get shot out of the sky by a Stinger missile? That was given to the Mujahideen by the CIA in the eighties. They're gonna now they're gonna you know they switch sides. They're gonna blow us out of the sky. So we were that was kind of the first official conventional forces that was in the press. Okay, now we've got this foothold. It was called Camp Rhino. It's in November mm -hmm. of of two thousand one. We were in in Pakistan before that in October of two thousand one, like right after setting up internal security for an emergency landing base, so that like a, if an F eighteen that was bombing the crap out of Afghanistan. For, for some reason, couldn't land on the carrier. Like, it got damaged. That was kind of the emergency egress, and we did that. And, um, but I'm sure, I'm sure there was plenty of people in Afghanistan before us, but we were the first conventional. Just like, just like Baghdad. <laughs> we showed up to Baghdad, which we took the Amtraks across something called the Diala River when General Mattis wanted to open up a second front in Baghdad for the Marine Corps. The bridges were mined. Seventh Marines and Fifth Marines were, were crossing bridges that were mined, and they were fighting house to house. So 1st Marine Regiment, which was my regiment, we floated in Amtraks across and did like an amphibious assault of a city, like Way City, like, you know, 1960s in Vietnam. And um, it was insane. And let me tell you a quick story. The bravest, because resilience, there's bravery as a part of resilience, okay? We call it intestinal fortitude. Everyone calls troops heroes and that. We're not. There's certain people that are heroes. Let me tell you this one guy, Lieutenant Raider. Okay, was it was a combat engineer? First of all, combat engineers are already brave in my mind anyway because they play with explosives that can go off at any mm -hmm. time, and and blasting caps—the things that you put in explosives—are mm -hmm. usually made by the lowest bidder. That's the joke, like in government procurement policies. So, so you can set off explosive like an electrical charge, like in the air, just go off. You know, something can go horribly wrong. I'm scared of them. I'll I'll carry hand grenades, but I don't like explosives. I can sense like they scare. You know, like a tire that's overinflated. You just don't know what's going uh -huh, on. Right. So these, so the, so the people that choose to be combat engineers are like the DNA, the DNA, the DNA. So it's the warrior DNA, the combat, or the Marine Corps DNA. And now they're like just a little, little nuts, right? And I say that with a lot of love. So the combat engineers, that you know, they they clear minefields. They 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 do things that are very difficult jobs in combat. So this guy, and this is this is in my memoir, by the way. I saw him. So he, he, there was a need to see if the far shore of the Diala River, which was on the enemy side, Baghdad, mm -hmm. had a certain level of angle to it to where the Amtraks could go up. But if it was too steep, we had to find a different crossing point. Middle of the day, there's only way to find out is to go look at it and measure it. So this guy in the middle of combat, there's bullets flying. I mean, we're in war, right? Shooting artillery missions, strips down, takes all his body armor off. All he has is his, his, his pants, you know, his military trousers his boots and a skivvy shirt, just a t-shirt 
and he takes an M9 Beretta pistol, puts it in his teeth. He swims across the fucking Yellow River. No way. That, I swear to God, it's in my memory. I mean, it's in the unit history. And I was just like, holy fuck. Like, what did I just witness? You know, it's just, uh-huh. it's, I mean, he could have drowned. He'd been shot easily. Like, just nuts, man. You know, hats off to that guy. It's one of the bravest things I ever saw in my life. You know, it's, it's just wow. unbelievable. So, yeah. So that So that's kind of that part of endurance. So now, I know you asked, and I know I'm rambling, but you can, like I said, you could chop up. So my specific job in Afghanistan and then Iraq at a, a little bit higher level was to be called what's called the forward observer. And it's when mm-hmm. you are spotting the rounds for the artillery. See, the artillery is shooting. The guns are parked, you know, 15 miles, you know, 10, 15 miles behind you. I'm up front on the, on the front lines with the infantry shaping the battle, right? If there's enemy in a tree line, we're going to drop a linear target of high explosive on it and eliminate that threat. So because we were vehicle mounted for a lot of the fight coming, you know, across the border all the way to Baghdad, the vehicles, these Amtraks had chargers in them to where I could plug in the, um, the video camera and recharge mm-hmm. the batteries. And so, so what happened was in Afghanistan after nine 11, it went by weight and I'm and like, I'm short and I'm skinny. So it didn't really add any weight to the standard Marine load that they were weighing. We had to weigh ourselves. So it was like, you know, two pounds more of weight. And I got all this footage in Afghanistan and I saw like, number one, you're recording Marine Corps history, right? And back then there was no, you know, people didn't have cell phones or they had, not, you know, not cameras on your phones. And when I got back to the States and I showed my family the footage in 02, you know, in New Jersey, right? So around mm-hmm. here, a lot, a lot of people, everyone was affected in multiple ways by, by my 9-11. They, people knew each other, you know, knew people or went to school with them or you know, just that web in New Jersey was very, in New York and Connecticut is mm-hmm. tight for 9-11. I saw the power of that. And so in the year in 2002, General Mattis kind of told us that we were probably going to war. So we asked for volunteers to go if 1st Marine Division did go to battle in, in Iraq. So a lot of us who had seen combat in Afghanistan volunteered because we're obviously not going to just leave the unit because our four years is up, right? And this was before they had something called stop loss. So I, I was kind of a year older, a year and a half older, and had been promoted to first lieutenant, which is just what happens. And so now I had, there was three second lieutenants, so brand new lieutenants, who now did the job that I did in Afghanistan that were getting ready to do it in Iraq. And I replaced the guy that my, that did my job in Iraq because he got promoted to captain, right? So he's out. So now I was the, I was what they call the artillery officer, the artillery liaison officer for an entire infantry battalion to where you're also spotting the rounds in some situations if battalion headquarters is, you know, that is in the fight, which happened. But you're also, all of the calls for fire for artillery feed through kind of my desk or my radio net. Mm-hmm. And I approve them or I don't approve them. And so I got hmm. an air officer who's a pilot on my left, who's deconflicting the helicopters and the jets. I have an infantry officer who's a major on my right, who's deconflicting where all of the companies are in the battalion, all of the platoons, all of the squads. So we don't kill our own people. That's the whole thing. So we don't kill our own people. And there's the laws of war to make sure that you know, we're just not calling white phosphorus in on things that shouldn't be shot with that type of weapon. There's all, there's all these things, but it's, it's deconflicting. And I own those rounds. If I approve that round and it drops on our own unit, it's my fault. 
and his fault. If I, you know, the, the infantry officer, if we shoot one of our helicopters out of the sky, it's my fault and the pilot's fault. And, and so there's this, it's a very important job. Accountability is at its max. Yeah. hundred percent. It's life and death. Don't even worry about jail or any of that shit. Who gives a fuck? You just got Marines killed, which is to me, the worst thing that 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 can exist friendly fire is being responsible for friendly fire and and it's um it's just an unfortunate thing that happens no matter what you do it happened to us you know it happened to us and um we were the victim of it when a, an adjacent unit so nobody in my unit an adjacent unit i'll just say most likely one of the people that i served in that group of 12 with made a mistake or approved a mistake and injured a marine pretty gravely and knowing there's something called a sheaf when artillery barrage explodes it throws like you see it in the movies it throws like mm -hmm. dust and, and dirt and stuff right. travel up in the air and american especially u.s marine chiefs are tight because we're trained well trained iraqi stuff is more like hit or miss and the round over here and over there you want that good saturation to destroy a target a barrage landed in our zone and you, in a war zone especially like a city like you divide it up this mm -hmm. is this war zone belongs to this unit this war zone in the middle so that you're not shooting across and you're deconflicting right. in there even. So in this chaos, you're trying to manage the chaos and the enemy is trying to get in through that chaos along those seams of those units. So we saw a sheaf go off, you know, a barrage explode pretty close to us and it hit one of the Marines from our unit and I knew immediately that it was US artillery, which was bad. And I knew immediately that it was in our zone, which was very bad. I, you know, I hadn't shot it, but I didn't approved it. And so we picked it up, uh, picked up the, the radio handset and just called check firing and shut down all of the Marine artillery in the entire country. And that's another thing that the Marine understands from past battles and studying them. You have to empower those. It's almost like a business, like empower those closest to the customer so for customer mm. service. The Marine Corps, the parallel to that is empower those closest to the combat to make big decisions. So it doesn't have to jump up through this whole chain of command something like that like within 15 seconds if i if there's a delay of or even five seconds you know because you don't know if it's been called again because who's ever spotting that chief thinks that he's shooting at the enemy but he's shooting at marines and he's going to adjust and the next round would have been or the next barrage would have been on on charlie company or us you know so that's the perspective that and, and the responsibility and you know you're 23 24 25 when you're doing all this stuff and, and, and the riflemen are like 18, 19, 20, the Marines with, you know, kicking indoors and stuff. So it gives you the sense of perspective in life that it's kind of hard to get in, in other places. I mean, police work is, is similar and, and firefighter work is similar, e EMS and stuff. But I think, you know, sustained infantry combat on a big scale, it's kind of its, its, um, its own animal. So you look to the kind of other generations and then the question is with the endurance, because, you know, the podcast is called the endurance cartel, right? Mm. There's the endurance of stepping into that world and making it through boot camp, right? And then there's the endurance of training. Then there's the endurance of the wars, right? But then there's the endurance of the aftermath mm. and that lasts, that lasts until you die. And you kind of have to figure that part out too, which is a big part. That was my next question to you because... General Mad Dog, if I'm not mistaken, Mad Dog Mattis. Yeah. 
And uh, he actually hates that term. He hates I, I, I he can only imagine. He gets pissed off. Yeah. I can only imagine. It's one of those nicknames that you don't want to be saying it to his face. Yeah, yeah. He's a god. I mean, he's he's, <laughs> he's, the, he's the greatest living general. And, and like, I'm telling you, he's an absolute genius. He's read tens of thousands of books, like as good as it gets. I, if I would die for that man, I would, go, I would go through the gates of hell for that man in a millisecond. Let me think about it. You're not the first person I hear you say that. I, I've uh, heard a couple of other ex-Navy, uh, ex-military, they've, uh, they've all said, they've, when he was assigned in the past administration, as uh, I think it was national security. I can't, I can't remember what it was, but secretary of defense. They were like, "Yeah, we feel pretty confident with this guy here." Yeah, he's best. He's 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 the real deal. I mean, he. So we were Afghanistan. Okay, it's like a couple of weeks after nine eleven. Me and two Marines are freezing our asses off in a machine gun hole uh, in the middle of nowhere, looking through the night vision goggles. Night vision goggles, you know, so you could see at night. Mm -hmm. General Mattis was Task Force Fifty Eight Commander, so he wasn't even like our boss's boss's boss. He was like all the way up the chain. He flew in unknown to, to our unit, to our little desert airport base out in the middle of nowhere. We didn't know about it and was sneaking around. We were in a, a cigar-shaped defense, okay? So it's like a, you know, like looks like a cigar, kind of like an oval. He was inside of our lines, spying on us from behind with his night vision goggles, because Jeez. otherwise, you know, making sure that the Marines, that he was watching us and he would go from hole to hole doing what we were doing, making sure that, it, it, I mean, just watching us. And a general does not have to walk the lines at three o'clock in the morning, you know, without, it was just him. It was just him. And, you know, we heard him rustling. We gave him the challenge and password. He asked us information, you know, and he treated us as Marines. And it was just like, we're looking at each other like this. He was a general. He was a one, he was a brigadier general at the time. One star general. He's out there with us, checking the lines. And a good leader leads from the front. A good leader walks the lines and meets the men, no matter where it is. It's like, mm. I, I, can't, I can't tell you. It's giving me goosebumps. Right? And this is 20 years ago. It's like, you know, and now if you weren't doing what you're supposed to be doing, it wouldn't have been a good meeting. But like, I'll never forget this. He, he, but we're, you know, in our unit, we were doing most, even when, and Marines, you do in a, what you're supposed to be doing, even when you think nobody's looking. Because if mm. you don't do that, you could be letting your Marines down. I like that. Yeah, and you trust the Marine Corps enough that training is correct because it is correct. And General Mattis, you know, I, he didn't know our ranks or anything. Didn't matter, you know. And and you know, as as lieutenant, there's always an officer on watch, you know, on online. And and so he just talked to us like machine, like I don't know. It was like uh, this moment in time. It could have been World War Two. And we were on, you know, Pelulu, the island of Pelulu, and the generals like walking. It's the same thing. It's timeless, you know. And so, and he told us, he's like, you know, Marines, you know, if you think you hear something, or every couple of minutes, you take your Kevlar's off and you cup your hands like this, you know, and listening. And if you try that, you can hear better. It's like this thing, and just a tip that he gave us. I was like, and he's like, and do me a favor, don't go on the wire because all the lines are hooked in. He's like, mm -hmm. don't don't warn the other holes that I'm coming. We didn't. It was, that was an order. We didn't say do me a favor. Of course, that's how he said it. But it's still a fucking order from a general, right? <laughs> but it's just um, and he walked the lines all night. It's just, it's just awesome. I'm sure that everybody has a general Mattis in their lives at some point. You had creme of the creme, you know. I mean, you were. I mean, in another in another space and time, even as a a professor, 
or somebody like to be like that. Yeah, a professor. I mean, it, it could be anybody. Everybody has that general madness on them. And um, I mean, because obviously you're you're still so inspired by by uh, his teachings towards you and how he role modeled a certain behavior, a certain way of commanding and leading and going about, not just at war, but at life. And uh, just looking at you and then just uh, witnessing also what uh, the work you created with your documentary and uh, your endurance. And you mentioned the endurance of the aftermath, that your therapy was going and writing everything down. And this is what created books and that uh, you became an author you became a producer. You, This has been your therapy. A lot of people pick other avenues. They pick drug addiction. They pick athleticism. They pick all these random things, but they pick what whatever works for, for them, you know? But of course, it's you pick this this line and it's uh, it's inspiring to me, you know, to actually see what war is really about, what training for war is really about. And... I relate to that in a way because I picked getting on a bike, going running and doing, not that I went to war, but I, everybody, I mean, I was just dealing with my own demons. It's not a, it's not a pissing contest, right? For everybody, everybody's demons are their demons. Like, is it none or worse than the others? Because we have, we're addressing the mental aspect of the mental health aspect of lately, more than ever, all these people are coming out. It's like, fuck, I mean, I, I've suffered from mental health for such a long time and I'm addressing it. Like I, I, I had this conversation with our firefighter, Rob, the firefighter, and he said that his, he, he, he talks to somebody, he talks to various therapists and, um, but none could understand him in a way, just very few. Cause some, some people, some of them would, would ask him certain things and everything, but it was his outlet of going into doing Ironmans that has made him feel whole, made him feel like, okay, I'm inspiring other people. What, what do you think is your, your. Is this your cause? Is this your 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 way of kind of uh, telling people, you know what, this is my avenue. This is how I can inspire you to be better. For me, the the the, the will to fight and, and do all these types of things just comes from a love for fellow veterans and also seeing how that, these demons that everybody has, whether it's assault, you know, sexual assault or something, betrayal as a child, addictions for whatever reason, um, I mean, there's a lot of bad shit that are going to happen in life. And the, it first started with seeing young Marines and young soldiers coming back from the war after I was a little bit older. And there was kind of that little bit of an echo to where when the movie was released and I would do these uh, Q&As, question and answer periods, and I would see these kids that are five, six, seven years younger than I was who had just gotten back and they wanted to talk. I could see it in their eyes. I'm like, because they were where I was not too many years before that. And that's when I realized there's a whole generation of young Marines and soldiers who have seen sustained combat that need to fucking talk about it. And so the movie was my outlet, so I didn't blow my brains out. I wanted to make the movie. And it was my therapy, and I just needed to get it out there. And it was this like piece of history. The movie then kind of took on a life of its own. But when I saw the human beings... Who, want, who were at the movie or the mothers, you know, the, the, it was, but the human beings. I mean, it was the veterans and also veteran family members. Mothers who would say, I understand where my son or my daughter now is the, sort of understand why they are the way they are after they come back. And I, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, I was living in New York City. 
It was 2010. And I decided, I'm not, I'll never forget the moment. It was after a Q&A when the, movie was in one of the, when the movie was in one of the theaters there. And I said, I need to tell the other story. And I was like, uh, it's, I got to do my memoir. My parent, I hid my PTSD from my parents. My dad was a doctor. My mom had been a nurse. My dad had a degree in psychiatry, psychology from Harvard. I mean, like, and I hid it from him. And so it's just one of those things that you hide and you, you go into the cocoon, right? You stick your head in the sand and, and, um, it's a pattern that I've seen with, with, with veterans who, who have, you know, have taken their own lives. There's like a definitely a pattern to it. Your father never noticed anything? No, they, they, they noticed it when I first, especially in, two, in uh, 2004, I was pissed. But I mean, I hid the extent of me, like the possibility of me, you know, blowing my brains out or jumping in front of a bus or jumping off a bridge. I mean, I was pretty close. I don't think anybody knew how close I was. Um, the guys who made the movie found out as we made the movie. And that's actually in the memoir. There's emails going back and forth. Uh, and a friend of mine from from high school who was in contact, and they're like, "Is he going to do it? Do you think?" Like, and I didn't know any of this stuff. And so, but it was, you know, you got to do the work, right? Just like if you, the human body, if you want the endurance, it's not. It's like watering a plant, right? You got to do maintenance. You got to do the work, and it's, it gets a little messy. I was grateful to have survived that that time, the very dark time, oh three, oh four, oh five for me. And as soon as I saw others were struggling, just like you would help any fellow Marine or veteran, I'll, I, it was very early in the process about mental health and PTSD and this kind of awakening to, to it's okay if you're not okay. And the younger generations are a lot better about it. You know, I'm generation X, I'm 46 now. So even, even some of the older millennials and generation Y, like, but it's, it's, it's better. I mean, World War II guys came back and didn't say a word. Right, they just drank themselves to death. I think our generation is fucked up as it is. Yeah, it's just it's it's Generation yeah. X. We were we were just thrown into us like, all right, kids, just figure it out. Yeah. Uh, so any better? Yeah, smoke <laughs> some weed. So, so it really became about wanting to help fellow. Helping myself was the documentary. Helping fellow veterans was the book. And then, as I kind of aged, and saw. And, and just participated in, in civilian life, whether it's the corporate world, finance on Wall Street as a Swiss bank, or writing the process of writing about the creative process, helping my parents, whatever, whatever it was, like understanding businesses, talking to CFOs, like any of that stuff, I started to realize how valuable the lessons that we learned in combat were and how valuable mm. the lessons that we learned in training and the lessons that I kind of learned the hard way and through therapy and stuff in the aftermath. And I was like, all this stuff, all this shit really applies really fucking well to the civilian world, to business, to law, to sports, to not killing yourself, to being creative, all of it. And so mm. uh, it just, it, it works. So it's, it's like taking what the Marine Corps does of studying history and understanding things. There's so much more to learn from the Marine Corps. I apply every single day of my life. And so that's the answer of the why and then the how Talked to the firefighter and the surprise that he started doing the Iron Ironmans. You know, same right. with you. Like for me, physical fitness. I believe in the mind body connection. Right, it's kind of a cliche, but it's so true. And true. like, if you let yourself go, your mind goes right after it, and your emotions go. Your spirit gets lower, and you know, my sanity is from working out, and then the kind of the emotional spiritual balance is 
also from the working out, but also from things learned from therapy and just like living life, like other things, right? But for me, the foundation for the whole thing is the chemical shift in the brain, the brain chemistry shift mm. through exercise. Through exercise. Yeah. I, I, that's, it's the number one thing. It's the number one thing. It's, I think, more important than any type of medication. I think it's also more important than therapy. If, you, if I had to choose one thing, it would be running. Or, or, you know, it's just that and sunlight. So. <laughs> True that. And uh, we, uh, we have a, like a three-question blast. We call yeah. this the endurance corner. Yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> so Andy, I want to shift the, the questions a bit for you because you're a special case. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> you're oh, not sh- that special kid. I've heard that before. <laughs> special it case. Turn out so, well. <laughs> so usually the question goes like this. Um, I want you to just explain to me a moment when endurance played a role in making you a superhuman. But my question to you would be basically, how did all those moments in training during war and post-war it has endurance played a major role in making you this superhuman mic right now honestly i think the sense of perspective the sense of perspective is the amalgamation of everything that you mentioned the before during and after and all those lessons and it's the one thing in combat it's like taking a deep breath when the bullets are flying and you're scared shitless that you're gonna die and you're like, okay, the perspective of this moment is that I have a job to do and that hundreds, the lives of hundreds of Marines, if not thousands, are in my hands. So if I fuck up these numbers and transpose them and there's four fire missions going at once, in that moment, I'm a, I am a piece of a chain. And if I have a momentary lapse of, of, of judgment, that chain breaks. So my perspective is like, I don't give a shit if I fucking die, but I'm not going to let anybody else die. Okay. The aftermath, the sense of perspective for the endurance is, as you get older, you start to realize never, first of all, is to be aware and understand what the situation calls for. You don't sprint a marathon, okay? Sometimes you got to sprint, right? But a marathon, you run low and slow, right? Left, right, left, right, right? Get that good rhythm going. And so that sense of perspective gives you, somebody passes away, like a parent or a partner loved one, you know, it's, it's, you're like, okay, this aftermath is going to suck, but I got to pick up the pieces and picking up the pieces after somebody's death, especially if it's a patriarch or a matriarch of a family, that's a marathon. And so that, per- that sense of perspective comes in and you're like, I'm going to take a deep breath. Yeah. I'm really sad, but my family needs me. So we're going to, we're going to get shit fixed. We're never going to bring them back, but we're going to fix it, you know? And so it's that sense of perspective put together with a sense of observation and and excavating your past and learning from those last those lessons. The other thing is that I learned not to try and have endurance if my heart isn't in something. Fucking don't do it. If you hate your job, just fucking don't do it. Figure out another way to make money. Like seriously, and and I learned that when my cousin Annette, who's the same age I am right now, died of lung cancer spread all over her body. She was diagnosed in April and she was dead three months later. And I learned, I was in my thirties then. And that I ended up leaving business and trying to become a writer. And it felt like based off of her death, that's what forced me. And I was like, it came up with this thing, like the 90 day cancer diagnosis. If, if, you know, 90 days from now or right now, either tomorrow and looking back 90 days, 
or from right now, 90 days forward, either way, if I was to be diagnosed with terminal cancer, would I look at my last 90 days and how I spent them and be like, yeah, fuck it. I'll face death. I have, I've had a good life. Or am I a job that I fucking hate? And I'm like, I just wasted the last three months, months of my life. And that's how I live my life. A 90 day perspective, huh? I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's copyright, by the way, Battalion Productions. Battalion Productions. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. And, and that has never failed me. And people will look at you, especially when I was in my mid to late 30s, when you're like in your earning prime, especially on Wall Street or wherever, you know, people were like, what are you doing? And I was, I was working on building a new life for myself, getting two passports to kind of escape America and figuring out ways to make passive income. And like, but smaller income, not millions of dollars, you know, on Wall Street, not Wall Street, like, and simplifying and staying in shape. And I, for me, it was the right answer. I walked away, I walked away from Wall Street, I walked away from something that I fought for years to get into, that's hard to get into. Once I was on the inside, I was like, this sucks. I'm not doing it anymore. So I left. So it's just, uh, if you if you do that within reason, obviously it doesn't mean be reckless, right? And just blow up your life and just not have a plan or, you know, if you have children to like, they got to eat and stuff. But, you know, something my brother Danny taught me. It was Thanksgiving of 2009. It was the last thing that pushed me over the edge because Nanette had died uh, the year before and I was working for this this big company and it was Thanksgiving. He looked at me and he's like, Mikey, he, he had been a lawyer, an attorney for 15 years, prime years from age 25 to 40. And he was making a lot of money. Seven, he was making seven figures a year as an attorney. And he just quit one day and he announced it at Thanksgiving dinner. And, you know, my parents were like, holy shit, so what are you going to do now? And he told me, he's like, I know you're unhappy. I was president of this company. It was 30 million, had $30 million in revenues. I was like 34, 33 years old. And I was fucking miserable. And Danny was just like, if you don't want to do this shit anymore, he's like, just leave. He's like, you're going to wake up one year, one day. He said, he said this, he's like, you're going to wake up one day, you're going to be 40 years old and you're going to wonder where the hell the time went. That's in my memoir. And it was such a profound thing that that Monday, I gave my two weeks and I was like, I'm fucking done with business. I have no idea what I'm doing. I went to Vietnam backpacking, visited Way City, Marine Corps was, and kind of like got spiritual, like, okay, like asking the other generations of Marines, like just, you know, I'm going to figure this shit out. And uh, that's admirable. Those are those decisions that were the scariest were always the best. Oh, I, I, I concur, man. I, uh, I think uh, I've had my share of crossroads myself, but I mean, it's like, it's, it's it's all relative like you said it's, it doesn't matter it, it the crossroads are going to come and you got to be seeing can i sustain this can i this my heart in this can i do this without me waking up one day and like oh fuck. <laughs> yeah exactly that's it that's your body telling your mind telling you something you know and question number 2 would be i mean i know that maybe i know the answer already but i think i just want to hear you say this question number 2 is I want you to name a person that has inspired you just to go the extra mile and just tell us that why. Hmm. I know you're going to think I'm going to say General Mattis, but that's the, that's the obvious one. No, no, I, I thought I have another one. Go ahead. So my dad, who passed away in September. God bless him. Or two Septembers. And he, he, was, he came from fairly uh, lower middle class background in, from Red Bank, New Jersey. His father was a butcher. His, his grandfather was an American immigrant. And my dad, he was short like me, 
played football and was a quarterback. It was a star quarterback in Red Bank, New Jersey. Got a full ride, full scholarship to Harvard University, then a full scholarship to University, University of Pennsylvania Medical School and became this like genius doctor who could figure out, seriously, like he could figure out things that were wrong and make diagnosis for people who had been to like five or six other doctors. Even like 30 years later, like he's like, oh, where'd you grow up? And somebody would be like, oh, Kansas. And he would like remember that there was some fungus in the dirt in Kansas 50 years ago. And he, he would like do this test and he would have to fight with the insurance companies and they'd be like, no, you'd be right. So when I was growing up, I hated school. School sucks, right? Yeah, like, I mean, I don't know. It's some people really enjoy it. Some people really hate it. <laughs> I, I hate it. I think school sucks. And like, and but he's like, Mikey, you know, you can you can do a lot better. You're not reaching your potential. And you know, at the time, their philosophy was because what lifted him out was his grades, and so his grades lifted him got him his whole life that, you know, becoming a physician, he met my mom, who's a nurse. And then he became this expert witness on, on, for, for lawsuits that allowed him to live a very good life and provide us with a very good life travel. I mean, just a perfect travel. And I remember I'd failed the math test because I fucking hate math. And my mom was pissed, old school, Italian, angry, you know, hot blooded Dad just said, you know, Mikey, it's like, you know, if you do B work or C work or D work, you know, the way it works in America is that you're going to have a B or a C or a D life. It's like, always do A work. And that stuck with me. I was very young and, and, and it's like, okay. And so he would, he would, he, he's the one, he just always went the extra mile. He just, he would just, uh, he would just do what needed to be done. For anyone, he was like, and and patience loved him. Read read his obituary, and and you'll see like if you go on the on the the memory page or whatever it is, or the memorandum page, they you know where his patients are. I mean, he changed the lives of tens of thousands. He saved the lives of ten thousand people. He changed the lives of probably forty or fifty thousand people in in the fifty seven years that he was a doctor. Just nuts, man. So he's just a remarkable guy. So that's. You know, that's, that's, that's who did. I thought, you know, I, um, I would have never guessed. I, now I know more about your dad and, um, I thought it was Beth for some reason. Yeah. Uh, the- <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, so that, so she, she was, um, she kept my sanity in Iraq, just having her picture because it was not only because at the time you got to understand, you got to take it within context. And this is a two-part thing, right? Mm. At the time, I, as a, were the other Marines who were next to us, next to me, were convinced that there was weapons of mass destruction there. So we were there to eliminate the threat of terrorists fucking launching, you know, VX gas or whatever in the fucking subways, mm-hmm. the A-train right. in Manhattan, right? Very directly. I mean, that's was like, we were there to stop them from getting, from or, from bad organizations from getting very bad weapons of mass destruction. So it was that was my direct link to the reason of good that we were there. And she was the direct link to the past. And she was the direct link. The thing is that she died violently. She was at work, man. You know, she, she was a, a trader at work, trying to earn a living, you know, young, in her 20s, like living her life. 
and somebody fucking flew a plane into her fucking work, you know, like, so the other side of that was I was there to fucking get some payback. You know, it was people had nothing to do with it, but I didn't know that at the time. And just making that statement that it was people that took me 10 years of being a veteran, you know, 20, 15 years ago, I'd be sobbing right now. I wouldn't be able to admit like, you know, okay, it is what it is. But after some, some, some years and, and getting older, you start realizing that being, being a United States Marine, you didn't start the war. You're not the one who sent any of us into battle. You were there to do a job. Mm. It's there to win, achieve the objective and bring as many Marines home alive as you can. And that's what we fucking did. And that's it. It's to me, it's, and I'm not pooping it. Like that's, it's as simple as that for me. It's that sense of perspective. Like we were talking about before, you know, and thankfully I came back in one piece. I'm not sure that I would be, I know a lot of Marines and, and soldiers who have not come back in one piece, who are missing limbs, who are, or who are physically injured. And they are better human beings than I am because they also have that sense of perspective as if we were doing our job and they're still positive. I'm not sure that I have that in me. They're better. I, honestly, I would be, I'd be fucking pissed. I'd be better. So. As they say, right. Everyone has a cross to carry. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I was talking to a Marine whose, whose brother got killed in the war and it, it was, this was a while ago and it was, uh, the conversation he asked me, he's like, do you think it was worth it? And, you know, we talked for a while about that one and it was a good conversation, but we both needed to have it. We had a good talk. So and it helped us both. My third question would be, what piece of advice would you give our listeners, just given your experience that you have acquired so far? Let your kids join the Marine Corps. I know you've mentioned this. I know you've mentioned this, be like bits and pieces of it. But if you could, if we're in an elevator and I would tell you just, and I would just ask you, hey, Mike, What the hell did you learn, man? I mean, what what advice can you give me? I would say there's a there's a couple things. It can't be just be one one word. Shoot. I would say look back through your life and understand that sense of perspective is the number one thing. And, and understand the current problems that you're dealing with through that lens. Number two, this is also copyright. <laughs> is is to is to uh Harness the power of discipline. Mm. And we probably run, we won't have time to go through that whole thing, but we can talk more about that at some point if you want. Yeah, no, no, no. But I want to hear you say, what's discipline for you? What's discipline for me is it's a two by two matrix. And it's the meeting between the, the way that the warrior views the world externally and internally. And also the forces of attacking and defending. And so it's a, it's a little bit complicated. But the thing that most people are lacking, whether it's dieters or people who are trying to improve themselves, you know, myself in, included, it's not the will to fight. It's discipline. That's, mm. the secret. That's the, And discipline's the secret to endurance. Because to get to a high level endurance, you absolutely need a discipline. So. Mad respect, buddy. We're gonna we're gonna have a another conversation further down, but <laughs> part it's two, part two. It is it is because I mean it's it's. Um, Does that mean I have to have another shirt on? Can I wear the same? Yeah, shirt? yeah. Probably. I mean, it's. <laughs> <laughs> This is me dressed up. Um. No. Listen. Hey. Li um. I have nothing but respect for you, but and um, you've had your share of work that's been in BBC and and CNN. Uh, I saw you on Carson Daily. 
you've been all around just what work can we expect from you now? I mean, can can you want to? Oh yeah, like plug, plugging stuff. Giving you the stage here and the mic here to to promo. What what is it? Where can we find more stuff from you? Where can we learn more from what's Mike been up to? Sure, it's um, uh, I'm pretty I, I I'm pretty uh quiet these days. It's been about ten years, but I, I actually have an entire novel that's been finished. It's formatted. It was there was uh, some interest from some of the bigger publishers. Didn't work out. Not going to get published. Kind of the world shifted a couple of years ago. Some things mm. changed in the types of what stories. What happened? Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh-huh. So I am also working on a TV slash streaming series that takes place in Finland that you can actually check out the trailer for that on YouTube. If you type in Tailspin Finland, there's going, you know, I don't know if that's going to get picked up or not, but I'm working very hard on that. We're going to put all these on our. Okay. So uh, yeah. Just yeah. Tailspin Finland on YouTube. And that is also going to be the the prequel to that. What it hopefully maybe will be a series someday is uh, going to be a short film. That's going to be out. It's going to be called Tailspin Finland also. And uh, this all makes sense if you, later. I've also got a, a series of self-help books that are partially finished. All the covers are done. The characters are made. It talks about some of the things that we talked about today. Uh, but once again, after my experiences with the U.S. publishing industry and understanding the kind of do-it-yourself world of some of the larger algorithms that are out there now, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. All this, I've been working my ass off. All this stuff, is, a lot of it's done. And I'm just, I'm not going to release it yet until the time is right on the right platform. Who knows, man? Maybe we'll do something together. Maybe we'll do something together. I get, I mean, it's like you mentioned a lot of things here, man. The 90 day. Tra- <laughs> yeah. But, that, that, uh, I mean, that's, that's all part of it. I'll send you the outline, man. I love this. I mean, that's all part of the first book of the Warrior Heart series. It's like a. I would love, love to read that. And uh, it's crazy that before, like I'm forest gumping my way through, man. And it's. <laughs> we all are. We, we all are. And I thought to myself, you know what? I want to learn more about people like you, man. People like the firemen, people like the doctors I've been interviewing lately, the astronauts I've been interviewing lately. That's the true endurance. That's the specimen right there. And I've interviewed knowledge in the past, but nothing for me, no greater experience is practical experience. How can, how did that endurance serve you? Where, where are you in endurance? And that for me is the fascinating thing because I know there's more of more more mics out there that I want to interview and that are just as fascinating as you are. And they got a story to tell. And this is why I, I picked podcasting and I don't I didn't know how to start, how to do it. And look at us here, man. We're talking stories, uh, swapping all these great things. And you got all these great books that you're just going to I mean, the, the world's going to just flip over backwards for you. man. It's just that's the way I see it. Well, if you want, if you want to interview more veterans, I would just off the top of my head, I would say maybe a submariner, which is not, it's not a physical. I mean, it's physical, but they're not like carrying rucksacks and stuff. They're, I mean, that's fascinating to me. I wouldn't be able. I would freak out. I wouldn't be able to do it. If you can get me a submariner, hey, I'll be more than happy. Yeah, I mean, a submariner. I think um, it's being stuck under underwater would not is not cool. Yeah, I mean, just six months without sunlight, man. I, I know how to do that. <laughs> So submariner, I think that the obvious ones are like Navy SEAL, you know, special forces guys. Um, but also things that, you know, sometimes when I talk to organizations, 
but like integrating veterans into their into their space, the world is changing. So like if you're a drone, you know, a high level drone operator launching missiles, right? Hellfire missiles into vehicles based on some we call it secret squirrel shit, like, you know, right. organization <laughs> stuff. That can be done from like the desert in Nevada, an air conditioned desert in Nevada. And it is sometimes, at least the way that I understand. So say you just killed a bunch of people with a Hellfire missile playing what in essence is a video game. And then you go and you get in your car and you drive off base and go home and like kiss your partner. Like that's, that's a new type of war, war and, and experience combat, PTSD, whatever you want to call it. Like if the, if it comes to that, it's just different, man. So, so, you know, that's the thing about the military is that there's so many, every, everybody's experience in military is completely different whether you're a weatherman in in Idaho for a base or a submariner or a jet pilot or a 19-year-old Lance Corporal you know in Fallujah kicking in doors and shooting people in the face like there's a it's a huge spectrum and not they're all important you know some are just some are just different and they all take endurance what are your impressions of all these shows of boot camps and military type of shows and all that crap. What do you, what do you, you see that? And what's your first thing? I mean, it's like, you got to laugh. You got to say these fucking people, man. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting old now. So I'm like, eh, I say, God bless America. Like it's, you know, that's the marketing thing. I mean, it's just, it's people trying to sell advertising, but it's, I, I look at, look at it this way. I mean, some, some people get, they're like, oh, they're appropriating the military culture. I'm a little bit more laid back than that. I'm like, you know what? If people are trying to, to better themselves, and I know that, you know, a lot of the things are fake or it's, you know, producers are trying to create tension and stuff. It's all in good fun. You know, it's all in good fun. <laughs> so, but I'll say, what's that one where they run up the, they got to run up the tower at the end and they get to grab it. Right. What the hell is it? Um, there's, it's one of those things. There's like water obstacles and then they got to right. run up the, uh, the ninja or something, ninja or something. Oh, ninja warrior. Yeah. Ninja warriors. Yeah. I watched like one episode of that. And at 40, I'm 46 years old, the 46, I'm like, I would, I would dislocate my shoulder, you know, I'd like pull a ligament. It's like, I can't do that anymore. I can't do that anymore. So it's like a... Oh, I heard you dislocated your shoulder for a boot camp, huh? Did. So, so like phase one, at least back then, this was 1995, Paris Island, South Carolina. There's three phases, phase one, two, and three. Phase one is like breaking you down. Phase two is rifle range. Phase three, you're becoming a Marine. So there's this thing they call it the octagon, and it's like one out of one of those shows, right? And it's mm -hmm, got the sandbags, right. and it's got the, uh, <laughs> the pugil sticks, whatever the hell they're called. And I got this helmet, and so it's me and Suet, this guy Suet, he's a Filipino guy, he's another short guy, and they, you know size versus uh -huh. the two shortest guys in the platoon. And so we go in there with pugil sticks, and we're combat hitting schools to beat the crap out of each other. And they blow the whistle, we throw it on the pugil sticks, and now we're doing like fighting, like boxing, right? So he throws a right. In the moment, I threw a left, and he hit me right here, and he knocked my shoulder. It's called the sublux, which is a partial dislocation, mm -hmm. and he ripped like the tendons or ligaments—I forget which—right here, right. Yeah. but clean off. Didn't even hurt. My arm was hanging out. I'm like, ah, and then it popped back in. And for the only thing that happened was that for like a day or two, it, it was like a little sore, but like I I could still do pull-ups and everything. But then it didn't dislocate anymore for boot camp. Until one day I was taking like a surfing lesson or something and I was doing the paddle and my arm popped out again. And then I was in the gym at University of Miami, my buddy Elvis, and we also joined the Marine Corps, big Elvis, and uh, it popped out again. 
So I started to realize, I called my dad and he's like, yo, and they got an MRI and this guy, Dr. Uribe, who does like the Miami heat. He's like, yeah, yeah. gave me an open bank heart repair that lasted ever since then, all the way through officer Kennedy school, which is worse than Paris Island, two wars, like 25 years of, of, you know, working out. So when my dad saw the MRI, he's like, Mikey, he said, holy shit. He's like, how the fuck did you make it through boot camp? And I was like, it didn't hurt. He's like, the ner- it just was like a clean rip, but the, but the shoulder or the arm was no longer stable. And, and that's where the, going back to the advice, like there's that sense of perspective, but there's also, I remember clearly the will to fight. I remember I was like, I was in like week two of 13 of boot camp or week three. I will either die or I will become a United States Marine. Period. I remember, and I was like, you know, 19 or whatever. I was like, there's no fucking way I'm getting, because guys were getting sent home left and right. And you go home. There's no, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen for me. I will die. I'll die like heat stroke. My arm will fall off. Like it's just not, it was not, it's just not going to happen. And it's just like that mentality goes through when you're in combat. You're like, I will not make a mistake. Not on my watch. That's the, that's what they, the cliche, but it's true. Not on my watch. You decide right there, and it, you read you read things about Medal of Honors that, that Marines win, like when the trucks bat, like two Marines and the trucks barreling towards them, full of explosive, and then two you know nineteen year old Lance Corporals get there with their rifles, stand in front of the truck, and they're just shooting right at the driver. No one is going to go off. Like they that's that's the that's the Marine Corps might. You're just vicious, and you're like not on my watch. It's not gonna happen. Yeah. So. I work with a former Marine and he, um, he said, um, spirit, the corpse, he says. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. So the way you say that is esprit de corps. Esprit de corps. Esprit uh-huh. de corps. Esprit de corps. That's when it's like hundred percent esprit de corps. And it's like, it's so important. Imagine. Okay. Now, now apply that to like a business organization and everybody loves their job and they want the, the company to be as successful to, as possible. And so they work as hard as they can doesn't exist, <laughs> but, but imagine if it did, right? Like where everyone was like, that's what's pretty cool. Or like you see, I'm sorry, you're a person, you know, you're one of the best, if not the best personal trainer in Miami, right? So appreciate you, brother. You see it when people have spree de corps, like you, you see it, right? Like when you, if you bond with them and, and you see them improve, like versus somebody who doesn't want to be there, who's miserable or, or they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Right. Right. I agree. So going, he mentioned something else that, yeah. Never above you, never below you, and the always beside you. Exactly. I was waiting for that. And, and <laughs> so, that's, so that's like what we were saying. General Mattis is walking the line meeting the men. And he's a, the guy's a fucking general. He's out there freezing his nuts off in the middle of Afghanistan, talking to us as Marines, like giving us advice. And that's leadership. And just as a sub... And good leadership, you understand that your subordinates, even though they're below you in rank, are more important than you are because they're the backbone. They are the Marine Corps. And I'll tell you something. There's a th- in, in the Marine Corps, the, the lowest ranks eat first because there's never enough food in combat and it's a tradition. So the privates, they eat first and the officers in the highest ranks eat last. And it's a show of respect. That's, it's, it's, it's such a beautiful organization. So So... That quote is so correct because it's beside we're, we're we're partners in this, you know we're brothers and we're sisters. Even though the rank structure that you wear in your collar, you got on your you know, or you know you got on your your arm, like mm-hmm. we're all Marines, all Marines. And you, I run into a Marine who's ninety years old. I'll I'll die for the guy. You know, it's just like a, 
It doesn't exist anywhere. It doesn't. It's a brotherhood. It's a brotherhood, and it's a it's a family. Yeah, there's it's, it's a little bit of a it's, cult too, which it I is. Like. And I oh, and I've it. seen it, and yeah. I've seen, and I've witnessed it, and I can see the how um, the behavior amongst you guys, the brotherhood, the family, the camaraderie, the everything. It's just uh, a very unique, uh, a unique language. How how you guys interact with each other, and it's very. Uh, from the outside looking at it, it's like, wow, you know? Your, your thing fell. Yeah, man, it fell. <laughs> Just to see, man, we're all Forrest Gumping. <laughs> but Mike, listen, I appreciate you coming, brother. And uh, thank you so much. We're definitely going to have a phase two here. And uh, for for our listeners, just don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Or you can see us on YouTube if you want to see the video. If you want to listen to us, we are on Spotify. We're on Pandora. We're on iTunes, Apple iTunes, everywhere you want to find us. Uh, don't forget to click on our Patreon as well. And uh, we have everything that you've heard on this podcast, all the links and everything will be shared on the notes. So with that being said, I appreciate the listening. I appreciate Mike for joining us. And uh, once again, cool runnings, guys. Train well. Thank you for listening to Endurance Cartel. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, subscribe to the podcast and give us a review wherever you get your podcast. Join our cartel by supporting us on Patreon and receive other perks. Hey, why not? Maybe even become a guest. Ah, I almost forgot. Join our website at endurancecartel.com. And if you like, leave us a message with a question or topic that interests you, and we may even feature it on our future episode. You can also find more information about our episodes by visiting our blog and subscribing to our newsletter. That's it for now. We'll see you next time. Same place, same vibes. Be good. Endurance Cartel.